the two main things that most businesses need to have a good idea on is their incident response plans. So what do I do if an incident happens? Who do I talk to? How do I manage it? And their business continuity. So if it does happen, how can I manage my business without it? Hello and welcome to the NZX Opening Bell podcast. My name's James Sharp. I'm a Senior Relationship Manager at The Exchange. We are recording this in early December 2023. Now it's fair to say that over the course of this year we have been privileged to speak to a range of different people within the capital markets ecosystem, including many of our issuers of course. Today we're taking a slightly different approach and that we're focusing on a particular theme and it's a theme I think which is relevant to many of our listed issuers businesses alike in the unlisted world as well as from a personal individual perspective and that is one of cyber security and to help us with that conversation it is a delight to welcome Alistair Miller advisory consultant at Aura Information Security so a very uh, warm welcome to you Alistair. Thank you very much James hello everyone. So I think perhaps the most obvious place to start Alistair is could you just give us maybe a bit of an idea of your kind of background, your role at Aura and you know, your kind of responsibilities? So at Aura, I do a lot of being a virtual CISO. So that is Chief Information Security Officer. I go in and help organisations who can't afford a whole Chief Information Security Officer. They're expensive people or just wants to have one for a time. I go in there and help them with their whole strategic view of cybersecurity. So looking at governance, risk, compliance, and then down to how they're trying to mitigate the risks that they have. Before I came to war, I was actually a CISO for a couple of years. So I actually had to live that and talk the talk. And then before that, I did quite a lot of consulting in the cybersecurity space. Fantastic. So we're clearly drawing on quite a deep experience. Now, we do obviously want to really get into some of the details, particularly from your kind of consultancy work, perhaps maybe starting, however, with a a slightly higher level, so to speak. I mean, how would you really view the whole environment of cybersecurity, including the kind of cyber attacks that take place day to day? Have these grown in frequency and depth over time? Or is it always been a fact of life of international connectivity? It's always been a fact of life, but unfortunately, it is getting worse. Cordia recently did some research and they found that 80% of the businesses that they surveyed had had a cyber attack in the last 12 months. So, and and that's a successful cyber attack to some degree, obviously degrees of severity. But, you know, if you're thinking 80% of the businesses they surveyed, around 200 businesses, that is a lot of businesses. So you can just extrapolate that across the whole market. It pretty much means over two years, you're going to get a relatively successful attack, even if it's just a phishing email that gets into the organization and causes one account to be breached. But yeah, it's escalating because there's money involved and the barrier to entry is pretty low. You can go to the dark web, you can get ransomware as a service for 30, 40 bucks. So, you know, your teenager can go and start becoming a, a cyber criminal. It's not hard to get into. And the rewards can be pretty high. Unfortunately, the, you know, the chance of getting prosecuted, depending on where you live, can be quite low. So unfortunately, it's going to keep growing. So there's a few things I'm keen to pick up on there. So one of the drivers being it's easier to actually execute some kind of cyber event, attack, whatever you want to call it, from anyone, even in their own sort of bedroom, so to speak. So that sounds like that's one driver. Definitely. I mean, you imagine the hacker who's really skilled, got lots of screens in front of them, is, you know, can do code in their sleep. It doesn't have to be now. It's someone who can just get onto the dark web, has access to a credit card, and they're off and running. So that is a very low barrier to entry. You 
you don't need skill, you just need luck. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's obviously quite concerning. What is the, I guess, the, the prosecution rate or, or what is the likelihood, the frequency by which these people get caught? And the image I have in my mind is maybe we see in popular culture, you'll see a film and there'll be like cyber experts, kind of police in a room full of screens and they've detected some kind of hack. And then they're kind of tracking it across the globe and then they can locate where the person is and like in some island in the Caribbean or something like that. I, I think it's a James Bond one I'm referring to. Does that actually happen or is it, I it's guess... It's much yeah. slower and unfortunately a, a much more sort of disjointed process. So there are all the sort of, you know, cyber police type agencies, but there's also a lot of private industry who help out, do a lot of the research, but this takes years. So you'll find when they actually do finally the Interpol and the Europol and the FBI and people actually start arresting people... They'll go, oh, we started this investigation four years ago. We tried to trace the people. It took ages. We had to find out which country they were in. So it does take a long time, a lot of effort. And then they tend to pick off the high-level people, the people sort of backing the services. And what you might call the more frontline people tend to just drift off because they're much more loose affiliations between the groups. I presume when you say time, resource, there's also a cost element to that, presumably, yes. who's going to pay. Is that exactly. I mean, yes, if you can imagine, you know, there's a limit to the, what the FBI have a lot of things to do, so they can only have so many agents all that costs money the same with you know international policing working across the world is hard expensive and there's a lot of other things going on in the world interesting you mentioned i think one particular tactic just a minute ago but what are some of the tactics in kind of simple terms if i may ask yep. that hackers and cyber criminals employ to get something from their intended targets well the favorite one and the one i'm sure everyone's experienced is phishing which is where you get sent an email that is dubious at best it will have downloadable content in it maybe a sort of file which has got malware on it or a link that takes you to a website which will give you malware so I'm sure everyone's seen those dodgy ones in their email or seen them in their junk folder. That, it just gets sprayed everywhere continuously because they can send it to a million people. They just need one person to click for a success. Now, this has its close friends vishing, which is with voice. So you get a phone call telling you to do something, asking you to, you know, possibly pretending to be your boss or someone saying, can you help me? Can you do this? Or there's smishing, which is SMX. So you get a message to your phone. I'm sure you've seen the UPS or DHL, you've got a parcel type stuff. Click this link because otherwise it's going to disappear. You click that link and they've got malware on your phone. It's those communications to everyone in the business, in personal life. That's the most efficient and unfortunately a very effective method. And maybe an obvious question perhaps that I've always wanted to ask is how do they get your email and how do they get your phone number? I kind of make the very naive perhaps assumption my phone number is just known by my friends and family in the phone company. How does that information get out into the ether, so to speak? Well, if you can imagine all the stuff you give to marketers, so you've entered it into businesses, they use it for marketing. This is the sort of negative marketing, so to speak. They can go away and buy these lists. These lists, you know, exist legally and illegally all over the place. They can either steal them or buy them for a very small amount of money. And they've got millions of emails address, millions of phone numbers. And then there's breaches, which also release that kind of information. And they can just search through that and again get massive lists. So unfortunately... Things like phone numbers, email addresses, even physical addresses are floating out there and available for hackers to use. Perhaps we can lean into your experience in terms of your advice to, to businesses. And I'm conscious that there's perhaps a limitation to what you can perhaps share, given the kind of sensitive nature of some of this stuff. But how do we defend ourselves? I, I note that some of the research you referred to on your website notes that one in five businesses have no plan to deal with a, a cyber attack. So, so where do you start with that conversation? We really want to understand when we first go into a business is what are your key assets? Because those are the things you're going to protect. Now, a business will have a lot of assets, but it costs you a fortune. It isn't worth trying to protect everything. 
So you find out what your key things, they're often customer relation databases, where you're keeping your IP, what's essential to the business, how can we protect that the most efficiently? That's one of the first things we do. And sometimes businesses haven't really thought about that, it's rather scaringly. So that even when it comes to incident response or normal business continuity, they haven't got plans in place, but most of them have got a good idea. So then we can start working them with them. Well, how do we protect this? Who has access to it? Is it encrypted? So if someone does get access to it, they can't see in clear text what it is. So that is the beginning of the journey and really helps us sort of pivot down to what's essential for them. And, and how much of that kind of proactive, I guess you call it proactive, protective action that one could take? You mentioned about smishing and vishing. Clearly, there's still a direct line into people within a company. So presumably, a lot of the protection still relies upon, with all the best architecture in the world, it still relies upon individual best practice would that be fair today absolutely i mean people are your strongest link because you know they're far more intelligent than even the ai systems that everyone's talking about now people can work out what's dodgy much better than ai but they're also unfortunately your weakest link so if they're tired bored frustrated they will not do what you've tried to train them to do that is that risk now you can do i would recommend lots of training constantly reminding them making it quite gamified so that it's not become sort of um compliance rotor ticker bot but you do need to constantly remind them and engage them and if they do get stuck how can i help them in a non-retaliatory manner because if you they clicked a link and they know someone's going to come around and smack them on the back of the head. They'll just say nothing and hope it all goes away. If they know they can go and talk to someone and say, how can I solve this problem I've got? Then they know what to do and they'll feel free to do it quickly and knowing they'll be supported. Yeah, it does sound like creating a positive culture amongst your employees and staff does enable people to be more open about anything that can happen, I guess. Okay, so we've dealt with some of the tactics. So you also mentioned about the way in which you're able to help businesses. What's your experience working with businesses who, who might be out there in the public domain that something very public is happening or has happened? Is there a limitation to what you can tell or what business i guess can tell its stakeholders about a situation it's in is is that a challenge we always recommend open communications businesses and certainly if you go back to the experian one which is quite old now but quite a classic one they were very and target as well they were very reticent in what they told they slowly changed their stories over time it just creates a bad impression because whether they were lying or whether they were just only knew certain information at a certain time and then were very concrete about it It makes that message really hard and people get a little bit confused. So being open and upfront about what you do know and what you don't know, because cybersecurity events, you often get attacked, but you don't know what's gone on, where they've got to, how they did it. So there's nothing wrong with admitting your ignorance and going, we're investigating this, but we don't know yet. So a good communication policy, which is where, you know, you need a good communication team, but you need an instant response plan that actually goes, I'm going to go and talk to these people, these people, they'll help me with this messaging. So a good clear plan there and being open and honest with people and offering support where you can is a good way forward. I did see some of the research available uh, on the Aura site was referring to percentage of business leaders, 44% saying how they would consider paying a ransom to a cyber criminal. I'm presuming that is not a good way to to address a difficult situation in that respect. It's certainly a bit problematic. Obviously, governments tend to say don't do it, but obviously it's always your own choice. Paying it obviously encourages more because it makes them successful. It also signals to all of them that you're willing to pay, so you become a target again. But it's always a hard decision for a business when they really need to get back up and running or they've had information stolen that would be really compromising to try and hope you can pay and it goes away. Clearly, there's a lot more layers to this. Maybe just flipping to more personal information, cybersecurity perspective, You know, what are the best and most obvious ways that you can protect yourself from 
being a victim in these circumstances? There's a few. One of the first ones is a unique password for every account you have, especially the key ones. You know, maybe not, you know, the really basic ones, but anything that really matters to you, unique password. You want to go, if you can, for a passphrase, we always recommend. And this can be anything from a line from your favourite book, song, poem. It's anything that's 16, 17 characters long. That is quite strong. And if it's that long, you can even have gaps in between the words. So that's a good way of doing it. Multi-factor authentication, you're going to get to get on banking and all those kind of ones. If you can enable it on all your social media and other ones, a very good one makes it a lot harder for people to compromise you. Then as you mentioned, backing stuff up. Apple and um, Google and, and a few other services offer you the chance to back up your data to the cloud. And so if you do get a device compromised, obviously, if you are backing it up to cloud, you want to protect access to that. So good password, MFA on it. Otherwise, you end up like many celebrities who back stuff up to the cloud. And that is where people found it. So you do have to protect that as well. How do you keep on top of the ever-changing world of technology? Because presumably it's a cat and mouse game between the attacker and the kind of victims and the the security measures that you can employ. How do you keep on top of that stuff? Perhaps this isn't the time to necessarily focus on AI, but there's things around technology which are becoming ever more advanced. So how do you go about you know, advising businesses in that way? In, in, in one way, it's actually quite important not to concentrate on the changing threats, because as you say, they constantly evolve. What you worry about is the assets and you go, if this asset in my customer database, I'm worried about it being taken offline because then we can't talk to our customers. I'm worried about them changing the data because then I can't talk to my customers because, you know, the names are wrong and stuff. And I don't want it leaked. So what you're looking for is how do I protect that asset from any type of threat? So the controls and processes you put in place protect the asset. And then if it's AI, if it's robots, if it's even someone coming into the office trying to do something, it doesn't matter what the threat avenue is. The controls are universal for whatever that is. Otherwise, as you say, you're somewhat chasing your tail because with AI, it's now starting to mirror people with the deep fakes. It's still, they're still trying to do the same things to the same assets. So you put those controls in place and hopefully they cope with all the new changing threats. So Alice, there may be a, as well a question worth asking, given the fact that we operate within the capital markets. If I'm a stakeholder or investor of a let's say a publicly listed company there are subject to some kind of event what should i be aware of when i'm looking for information should i be patient should i be looking for certain kind of assurances how would i think about that situation there will be a lot of chatter all over the place and a lot of it will be quite uninformed because people just don't know and will speculate so the key people obviously the organization themselves hopefully they'll come out and tell you stuff but also if they're regulated in various ways so in new zealand the office of the privacy commissioner will say some stuff if they're notified of a breach and the same with the fma the fma will make some comments when they get that knowledge so you're getting it from people who've got it firsthand so trusted sources and then obviously the bigger media companies tend to be fairly accurate they're a bit speculative early on because they will go and talk to people like myself unfortunately who sometimes other people like that will speculate rampantly but yeah if you if you start kind of going onto the internet and looking at the people who go i know this probably secondhand best or made up so trusted sources and then it will come out slowly anything that happens quickly is almost certainly speculation so allow it to take time and again follow the sort of clear path, hopefully, from the organisation themselves. Fantastic. Are there sort of maybe one or two really key messages that you'd like to kind of drive home, whether that's for businesses and people that might be listening from the perspective of of running businesses and and indeed individuals? Uh, I think the two main things that most businesses need to have a good idea on is their incident response plans. 
So what do I do if an incident happens? Who do I talk to? How do I manage it? And their business continuity. So if it does happen, how can I manage my business without it? These systems, how do I fail over it? Or how do I manage all that stuff? And then test those. So we recommend tabletops every six months where you get all the key players together and you go, let's pretend we've had an incident response issue. Let's run through the plan, make sure it makes sense. And the same with, let's pretend our key system has fallen over. How does the business continue? So you've tested them out. You've tried them out. People are used to them because muscle memory really helps when these things happen. And maybe you've tried some secondary people out, because obviously your main contact may be on holiday or maybe sick. So more people in the business understand that can be gold when something terrible happens because you've tested the plans and people know the plans. Maybe again, a very final question then in terms of your your role and and more information security. What things are you thinking about into next year as we move into 2024? I think sort of supply chain attacks and those third parties who have access to your system. So all those reliance on other people, it's getting more complicated. As you say, we're getting a more interconnected world. It's just how do we deal with that in a way that's manageable? Because many businesses have hundreds of third parties and interacting players in their businesses. So I can't assess them all. I can't, you know, really pay a lot of attention to them. So how do we do this in a streamlined and sensible way that businesses can afford and actually have the time to do? So that's an evolving practice that we're trying to improve and make sure people can actually do it because it is really hard. So I think just to leave it there, um, Alistair, been a pleasure having you in this morning. Covered obviously a lot of material, a lot of great advice and insight and yeah, all the best for what we have left of this year and and of course uh, into 2024 as well. Thank Thank you very much, James. The information provided in this podcast is a guide and is intended for general information purposes only. The information is not investment advice. The information should not be relied upon as a substitute for detailed advice from a professional advisor. The podcast may contain opinions or forward-looking statements and actual results may vary from what is expressed in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of NZX. NZX Limited is not liable for any loss suffered through relying on the information in this podcast. NZX makes no warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information in this podcast. All intellectual property rights in the content of this podcast are owned or used under license by NZX, and NZX's written consent is required to use, redistribute, or reproduce the content, or use it to create other works.